Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Welcome back to another live advertising show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. The advertising show is being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The advertising show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. We've got Jeremy Kent coming your way here in just a little bit, and we're also going to get a chance to meet Kit White. It's, uh, he is the author and uh, has done many more things beyond that of a, uh, of a book called... Um, the 100th, or that is 101 Things to Learn in Art School. He's an adjunct assistant professor of painting, Harvard University, uh, numerous solo gallery and museum exhibitions, works in major public collections at the Guggenheim, uh, the Johnson Art Museum, and, and so on and so forth. And we'll tell you more about uh, Kit here in just a little while and get a chance to meet him and find out what's going on in uh, Kit's world as well. But Brad, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing wonderful. And by the way, just by way of correction, I don't correct you often because you are nearly perfect. He, uh, Kit, is an adjunct assistant professor, I believe, at Pratt in, uh, in New York. And by the way, when we think of Pratt, we think of old George Lois, the uh, legendary art director who used to talk about attending Pratt. Gosh, what would that have been back in the... Stone Age. Uh, well, it was, uh, yeah. I guess, right after the Korean War. <laughs> But anyway, that was our <laughs> Yeah, it would have been after the Korean War. Yeah, We're going to have to ask Kit if we get some kind of uh, credit towards our degree at Pratt by interviewing him today. Well, that'll be fine. I think that's a grand way to do that. We had the, the Oscars this uh, past weekend. Or this past, I guess it was this past weekend. And, yeah. and it, it seems everybody's talking about the Oscars. Uh, Donnie Deutsch, who's a past guest on the advertising show and a friend of the advertising show, talked about the fact that the uh, basically... It's broken. He can fix it. Of course, we know that because that's Donnie. And he was saying that advertisers, they're just not throwing out new stuff toward the Oscars because they see, uh, like uh, some others, that basically the, you know, the, uh, the Oscars is, is losing as far as its market share. Uh, as far as audience goes. What do you think about that, Brian? Well, supposedly they did very well this past uh, Oscars uh, in terms of ratings. I thought Billy Crystal was a nice uh, move. And uh, apparently the 18 to 49, the demo all advertisers seek out, uh, I believe was um, static or slightly above last year's. And all in all, I think from a uh, critical perspective, point of view that everyone I didn't hear any disparaging words about uh, either the host or uh, overall the uh, the awards in general Personally, Well then you didn't listen to Donnie's interview because he well, said Well Donnie you know he's so damn opinionated of course that's yes. what he tries to do That's what he does uh, yeah. But what's interesting is you know they were trying to say that the way they set that whole thing up was all about trying to re-engage interest in uh, going to the movies Well I don't know about you Ray but Nobody walks down an aisle and hands me free popcorn. <laughs> Did you notice that? At the price of t no, at the price of uh, tickets, they should though. If you know, what well, I'm they saying. should. But anyway, I th other than that, that I thought was kind of uh, I don't know campy for the lack of a better term. I thought all in all. Uh, you know, the, I thought uh, Billy Crystal did a hell of a job, uh, and you know, setting the tone with the uh, uh, kissing, 
uh, yes. scene with, uh, you know, our dear friend who? What's his name? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, no, I don't, as a matter of fact. And I, I would watch? love to be able to help you out with this with a softball, but I can't. Well, he's the star of, uh, of uh, well, I'll ask my wife. She knows She knows very, everything. Yeah. yeah. I've, I'm having smart. one of those, uh, what do they call those? What? Brain farts. Oh, that. That, too. <laughs> Well, I tell you one thing, Brad, it's certainly good that we don't show our age here on the uh, advertising show. Oh, that's true. That's true. uh, By the way, Ray, we've been talking a lot about Martha Stewart in the 10 years we've been doing this show, uh, for her formation of Omnimedia, her uh, both pre- and post-incarceration periods. Well, now, according to... According to many studies out there, they're saying that Martha Stewart has expanded her brand in recent years to include everything from pet supplies to office supplies. And people are asking that if you uh, really were to ask someone to nail down, what does the Martha Stewart brand stand for, Donnie Deutsch? Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to, to figure out exactly what it does stand for. And I think it's a great example of spreading yourself out a little too thin and, and the public losing you know, connection with really what your brand essence and what your you know what your brand story is, and yeah. and what does it mean? And Martha's, uh, I guess, in a good example of what happens when you lose that. And she has uh, obviously lost that. Uh, she I mean, she's still part of the uh, the NBC Morning uh, stuff. She, she's still doing that. And, right. And uh, I think they mean from a product. You know, if you were, it used right, to be right. she was connected with uh, what was it, Kmart? It was or, Kmart uh, or, or or Target or Target. Something I think like it was that, Target. Yeah. But uh, and she, you know, she was known for that. And then you know she built off of that, and one thing led to another, and before you know it, I guess her products with her name on it is all over. I know I was in Kmart and saw some uh, some uh, kitchen items with her name on it. And I thought, wait a minute, I thought this was Target before. And so who knows? I'm, I've got some tires on my Jeep. They're uh, Martha Stewart brand. Have you tried these? I have not, but I have tried the Martha Stewart carpeting, which, by the way, I have in my home. That's a Home Depot product. Really? And it's actually... Pretty nice carpet. <laughs> comes, hmm. comes with a great guarantee. And so the brand is still there. It's just shifted a little bit. And I think maybe maybe what uh, w- what they're looking at as they shift uh, her out of one store into another store is uh, is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's more of a youthful move uh, than anything else. In other words, let's hit somebody who's a little bit hipper, a little bit cooler, yeah. and, and uh, a little bit younger demo. And isn't that true with most everything? <laughs> <laughs> right. Of course it is. And by the way, George Clooney was the guy that Billy Crystal was kissing in the opening scene. I think I've tried to block that out of my mind since seeing that. You didn't frankly, see that? Frankly, I'm glad I didn't see that because that would have no. been very disturbing. Yeah, it was disturbing. It would have been an extra visit to the uh, the psychologist or something. Yeah. Actually, it made me want to go out and kiss the guy that delivers our mail every day, which is what I did the next day. Thank you. That's a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. You know, but speaking I of, can't get rid of him, by the way. <laughs> I bet so, you can't. Hello, Mr. Mr. Forsyth. Um, Diane Sawyer, speaking of uh, female personalities, Diane Sawyer uh, is the most beloved news personality. This is a Harris Interactive poll. She's the most beloved news uh, personality ahead of uh, CNN's Anderson Cooper and NBC's Brian Williams, who are tied for second. I like Anderson. By the way, radio host uh, Rush Limbaugh registers as the least favorite <laughs> news personality. No surprise there. In some right? groups, I guess that would be. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I like Diane. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the, uh, the the Today Show as far as the lineup that they have. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to that show when it comes time for Matt 
to leave. Yeah. And it uh, seems they have a bunch of uh, folks uh, uh, beyond Al Roker uh, that are kind of like up and coming as opposed to well-established. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens to uh, the consistently high-rated Today Show as it transitions as well. we got uh, Jeremy Kent here on the advertising show coming up. Right now, Jeremy is our European correspondent. He tells us what's going on over there. No, no, no. Over that way, on the other side of the country. And we'll be back in just a minute. We've got uh, we've got Kit White coming up uh, out of New York here in just a minute as well on the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. It's powered by Shipple.com and a platform called Tendency. Check it out at S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. Back in just a minute. Hello and welcome to London Soho for the European News Desk. This week, News International launches the sun on Sunday, Greece is bailed out but for how long, and the Sofa King is in trouble again. At the end of last year, the phone hacking and bribery scandal that has engulfed News International led to James Murdoch closing down the news of the world. The tabloid was Britain's biggest selling Sunday newspaper and its demise left a big hole in the market. Britain's largest selling daily newspaper is The Sun, another News International title, and two weeks ago, police arrested a number of current and former Sun journalists as the corruption investigation delved deeper into News International. At the same time, Rupert Murdoch flew into London to take control and turn things around at the paper. In just ten days, he launched a new Sunday title, The Sun on Sunday. The first issue came off the press on 26 February, with News International claiming an initial circulation of three million. However, it remains to be seen how many news of the world readers can be won back in the long term. Across to mainland Europe, and much to everyone's relief, the Eurozone countries approved the second bailout package for Greece. It's hoped that the whole of the European Union can now return to growth. However, most British analysts believe that Greece will be back for more money by the autumn, and Germany won't like that. Despite Greece's problems, there's certainly an air of spring around, and much of the credit for improved market liquidity and the new sense of optimism must go to the European Central Bank. The ECB has recapitalised the Eurozone's struggling banks with unlimited loans over three years at just 1% interest. In the first round of funding before Christmas, the banks hoovered up nearly 500 million euros, and in the second round, last week, they did. They sucked up more than 500 million euros. That's over $1.3 trillion in total. Now, the European Union is the world's largest economy, but can its banks really afford to pay back $1.3 trillion in just three years' time? Undoubtedly, the Eurozone has bought itself some time, but there are only two ways to fix this crisis. Either the Euro folds and countries readopt their old currencies, or the Eurozone becomes a single currency with a federal government, just like the United States. Lastly, discount furniture Sofa King is in trouble with the UK's Advertising Standards Authority over its new price-conscious strapline. Sofa King Low. You have to be really careful how you say it, and that's what the ASA doesn't like. In its defence company says that it's not run the three words together but that just keeps the pr coverage rolling in this is jeremy kent at the european news desk for the advertising show back on the advertising show rachel and brad forsyth and out of new york a very special guest as you know we want to explore uh, lots of different options here as we uh, we get into uh, 2012 uh, brad and i and uh, this is no exception today kit white uh is our guest and brad considering the fact that you know indeed everything about Kit, I want you to tell me everything you know at this point well, in time. Well, uh, he's got a daughter. No, uh, Kit White's a New York-based artist who is an associate professor at the MFA program at Pratt. He's uh, studied fine arts at Harvard University, and his work has been the subject of numerous 
one-person exhibitions in New York and beyond. I know I've been to Bed Bath and Beyond, but I didn't know he exhibited there. Uh, he is married to the writer Andrea Barnett, and they have one daughter. And I want to ask uh, Kit, since he has graduated from Harvard and he's an artist, and now with the book and the teaching success, if that makes him the Jeremy Lin of the art world. <laughs> Good question. I, I don't know. Well, you know... I, <laughs> Being from Harvard, and I guess as with Jeremy Lin, not expecting to, you know, hit it out of the park with uh, a Harvard background joining the NBA, is Harvard the kind of school that's known for producing uh, wonderful, uh, high-achieving artists? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, it was a it was a very odd thing at the time I was there, which was a number of decades ago now. Uh, it was a very unusual thing for people to be doing. I mean, there were always people, I was in the art history department for the most, most of the time I was there. And there was an art department, but it was very small. But it's, a, it's much more an academic institution and the people who were doing art were really doing it because they were passionate about it. And in that sense, it was a, a wonderful place. Well, you know, uh, hats off to your book uh, designer. What a wonderful, uh, cover to this book. Uh, I would suggest you go out and buy one to know what I'm talking about, but it has a rubber uh, exterior with a little window cut out that has a uh, illustration in the window, and the uh, reflection at the bottom is, the, I guess, a kind of a surprinted uh, typeface there that is the opposite of what you see at the top, that being the title and your name. Who came up with the, uh, with the, the cover design on your book there, Kit? Uh, was done by Yasuyu Uguchi, who is a designer with MIT Press, and that is all her doing, and it's uh, it's really quite a marvelous cover, I admit. I was uh, extremely pleased when I finally saw it. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a wonderful idea, and certainly an art book. You expect it to be more than just your standard run-of-the-mill cover. Let's talk a little bit about your book, and we'll kind of go all over the place today with both covering some of the content in your book and also getting your insight into the art world. So why the book? Uh, was it an out, outgrowth of you being an uh, adjunct uh, professor at uh, Pratt, or is it something you always wanted to do? Why? It was actually nothing that I intended to do at all. I met Roger Conover, who is a, my editor at MIT, quite a number of years ago, and we started engaging in a long-running uh, series of conversations about art and about the teaching of art, and Roger was the one who actually told me I should do this book, and I said, Roger, I don't want to do that because I think it's an impossible thing to do, but uh, he kept on me, he kept pushing the idea, and finally I said, okay, Roger, uh, let me take notes for a little while, I'll think about it, and if I come up with something that I think is workable, then we'll move ahead. And so I did that, exactly uh, what I said. I started taking notes during my classes and listening to the things that, uh, the questions that were coming up among my students. And because my students are graduate students, the, the basic things, the technical things that came up were clearly things that they missed in their undergraduate education. And that was a red flag for me. So I thought that's an important thing. They missed that. They're at this point, but it's something they really should know and that everyone should know. And so after a semester or two of taking notes, I just sat down and started putting these ideas together. I sent them off to Roger and I said, if this is along the line of what you're thinking, then we're good to go. And if not, I'll go back into my studio and it'll be fine. And I got a two-word email back from Roger. It said, keep going. 
Hmm. So that's more or less the origin of the book. You know, when I uh, looked at your book uh, purely from the uh, title standpoint, I immediately thought, well, this is going to be a great prep read for anyone headed to art school. And yet uh, I found it to be enlightening and very uh, informative and instructive. And in the preface of your book, you, you mentioned that it's not only for students and teachers, but also anyone and everyone that cares about art. So it's um, who would you say you've targeted your book for when you were writing it? Did it ended up expanding beyond students when you initially started? Absolutely. I think when I started writing it, I was thinking in terms of the kind of issues that students of art are faced with. And the, and, but I didn't want to make it just a technical book. I wanted to talk about the way artists look at problems and the way they go about thinking about them. And so I was trying to enter the inside of the mind of a maker faced with the issue of developing a visual vocabulary. But I was also very conscious that this approach would apply to anyone who was looking at art because a lot of what students face or what anyone else faces. What is this thing I'm making? What does it do? How does it function in the world? And how do people interact with it? And so in the end, I think that the book isn't just about what you learn in art school from a technical point of view, but how one goes about approaching art and thinking about art. Well, you know, that's a great place to uh, jump off of just some general conversation. Let's get into the heart of the book. Uh, Number 10. Uh, and again, it's chapters. Uh, before I get into this, let me ask you, any particular thought or uh, insight from your standpoint as to the assembling of the 101 things that uh, you're to learn in art school? I mean, once you gathered all of these up, uh, did you sit down and say, okay, this would be better at number one than number 50, and I need to end on this one, so this needs to be 101? Uh, I did. I, I wanted to start... At the very beginning, what is this thing called art? And and I wanted to bookend it with the 101, which is what happens after you've had this education. You know, what do you do with it? Uh, then once I, I when I wrote these things out, I actually had about 156 of these meditations, I think. And then I slowly started to call them. And then I I literally wrote them out and put them on my studio floor and arranged them. And I would try to feel the flow of one lesson into another and break them up so I didn't have things that were too similar close to each other. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a long process. The, the idea of 101 really just comes from the, it's the academic introductory course, you know, yeah. 101 economics, et cetera, et cetera. So the number got set for that reason, but it could just as easily have been a thousand and one, but of course we couldn't see anyone carrying around a fifty-pound book, so we stuck with a hundred and one. I think the thousand and one is the Chinese edition. That sounds very Asian to me. Uh, let's jump into the some of the uh, chapters that you uh, so eloquently lay out in your book, and I'm going to hit upon some here, and we'll talk about them. Number ten caught my attention, and it's entitled "Art is Not Self-Expression." which I think is uh, counterintuitive to what most people think of art to be. So if art is not self-expression, uh, self Kit, what exactly is it? Well, I think the real, if you read through that lesson, the, the point of it is that the self isn't something that just comes out of thin air. The self is something that is constructed by the world we grow up in. You know, 
every day we're bombarded with enormous amount of information which we absorb unconsciously. We all come from a particular geographical region. We come from a very particular family that may or may not be close. We all have different kinds of education. And those are the things that really set us up for being who we are. And when we sit down to express ourselves, it isn't just something we're inventing. It's the thrust of all of those things that have gone into the composition of our characters and the composition of our cultures, and which is why art from different places doesn't look the same and deals with different issues and is interpreted differently, because it isn't just the self. It's The self is only the tip of the iceberg of something that is a very elaborate, familial, and cultural construction. And I wanted to really bring home the idea that this isn't just about someone sitting down and and willy-nilly saying, putting their feelings out into the world, that all of these things that emerge from us are in some way symbolic or indicative of something else that's in our culture, something else that's in our background. And that's what makes it possible for other people to read those things and, and to react to them. Well, let's get one more in here before we close out this segment. You say early on in your book uh, that each generation gets to reinvent art in its own image. So, Kit, if art is to always be transforming, as you mentioned in this particular passage, why, when we look back at particular periods of time, do we sometimes see a similarity in art over a longer period of time than just a generation. And one that came to mind when I was reading this particular chapter was uh, the Renaissance period, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, as I say in the book, art is a conversation that goes throughout history. And uh, it tends to be cyclical, the things that interest us. And, and because it is a conversation, we're often going back to the beginning of it to find out where we are in the present. So I don't think that anything ever is the end of anything. It's, it's always being things are coming back up to the surface, thing, other things are sinking down. Uh, things like figuration, figurative art, comes and goes, or at least has over the last uh, couple of hundred years. And I'm sure that things which now are no longer seen as being indicative of who we are and are passing away will probably reemerge later on when uh, that thing seems to be more interesting or seems new again. The uh, book is called 101 Things to Learn in Art School. Kip will be, uh, Kip will be coming out with this uh, sequel to the book, uh, 102 through 199. We understand that a little bit later on, right? No, not, not really. Uh, back in just a moment here. It's Rain Brown of the Advertising Show. Glad you're listening and hope you're enjoying it. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Hey, Columbus, we can't turn back without an order from you. I'm not talking while the flavor lasts. What are you chewing, peach nut gum? We could be in. We are back on the advertising show, Ray Schillen's Brad Forsyth. Out of New York, our special guest is Kit White, author of the book, 101 Things to Learn in Art School. But uh, there's so much more, Kit. I have to tell you, it's a pleasure having you here today. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, we were talking about, uh, just before we closed out last segment, the transformation and reinvention of art and so forth. And, you know, as I look back, I'm sure for you as well, Kit, being an art historian, 
in addition to being an artist and a, and a professor now, um, it seems like today art gets reinvented a lot quicker than it did for longer periods of time in, in the past. I'm wondering what impact uh, has the Internet and the digital world had on maybe just the art world in general and then in particular how often things tend to evolve and change today versus, say, 50 years ago? Well, I don't think there's any question that everything has sped up enormously. And uh, images uh, migrate from one area to another area uh, with enormous speed. Uh, I think that uh, just in terms of advertising, there was a time when uh, I think that, that people, a lot of people who were doing ad art came out of art schools. They looked at what was happening in art schools because they were incubators of ideas and they would call them. But now it's just an image comes out from an art school, it shows up or it shows up in a gallery in, in Chelsea in New York, and six months later it's, uh, it's in the public media. Likewise, art students are pulling those images out of that media and putting it into their work. And this feedback loop is furiously, furious and fast right now. And I think one of the things that it has really affected is that things are changing so rapidly and information migrates so rapidly that it's very difficult for a generation to really coalesce behind a set of images or ideas. Because in two or three years, everyone has already exhausted that and they've moved to something else and it's moved outside of national boundaries. So the whole edible cycle of you know one generation trying to overcome another and inventing a new language in order to do it has really passed away. And you have multiple types of work appearing simultaneously, work that is very much on opposite ends of the spectrum from each other. And uh, all of the students, of course, are completely tied into the web. And not only that, but computers are able to take information and images from other places and mash it up, and they can invent on their computer and then use that as the basis for what they do in their studio. So it's, it's, it's been an enormous revolution. You know, it's interesting you talk about that. Ray and I have had guests on the show where they talk about, and we've seen this over the years, how musicians, you're talking about visual art, but musicians at one time abhorred uh, the commercialization of their music. And then as the music industry changed, we saw that some musicians were using the commercial venue, if you will, as ways to get their art, their music in this case, uh, out into the public venue. So uh, here now in later years, we're seeing, as you just described, the same thing happening with uh, with visual media uh, from art world to advertising and advertising back into the art world. Let's talk for a moment a little bit, about Kit, about the uh, controlling of the art market. Who does it? How does money control the art market? And who decides what art makes it into the marketplace? It's a, it's a very complex situation. I, first of all, the... The art market is one in which there are no real objective standards, and that's one of the things that makes it a mystery to everyone from the outside. Uh, Who gets to rise and fall really is done by something that's called curatorial consensus. In other words, a certain number of gallery people, a certain number of museum people, a certain number of collectors all coalesce in their opinion around certain people, and those people slowly rise. But uh, it's hard to know at any one moment who those people are. And the 
both the personalities and the circumstances are changing all the time. So it's always a little bit of a mystery. But one thing that has happened over the last, I would say, decade to two decades that really has been different is there has been a tremendous amount of investment in art by people who are making money. And if, as soon as someone invests a lot of money in an artist, then that artist not only rises, but there becomes a stronger impulse in the market to sustain the value of that art. Because art really only, it's only worth what someone will pay for it. So if, so if the price keeps rising, there's more and more pressure to sustain the reputation of that artist. And I think that that's one of the difficult and sometimes potentially corrupting effects of the marketplace is that the opinion of whether or not it's good artistically can sometimes be influenced or overridden by the amount of money that's been invested in it. Uh, it's, it's like no other investment for some people in that sense. But uh, the museums now have a tremendous uh, influence on whose reputation is sustained. Uh, there are a certain number of individual curators, private people who act as consultants to collectors and act as consultants to galleries, and then there are the galleries themselves. But there's very little transparency and a great deal of opacity. Well, I'm just curious, can, uh, can an artist's career, uh, as you describe it, there's a lot of... Uh, pieces that have to fall into place with the, uh, in effect, uh, a gallery uh, decides to show your work and from that gallery leads to another gallery and depending on the prestige of that particular gallery determines what kind of attention uh, is given to that particular artist and who buys that particular artist's work and whether that artist has museum exposure, et cetera, et cetera, and not to mention uh, media exposure through uh, various art publications, art form art in America, et cetera. Can these kinds of careers that we're talking about, they seem to be very happenstance and luck of the draw. I mean, obviously, you have to have some talent. But unlike uh, an actor or a musician where uh, you tend to think that those kinds of careers can be managed and, and maybe uh, brought to, to a higher level through independent management, et cetera, can artists uh, be managed as well, or is it a bit of a... Uh, a bit more luck that goes into the to that type of uh, elevation of one's career. I think there's a tre tremendous amount of luck involved, and and the luck isn't just meeting the right people at the right time, but it's having the right image at the right moment when people are receptive to it. Uh, one an, an artist can be making fabulous work, but if it doesn't speak to that particular moment right then, then other people may not respond to it. The other thing that I think is different from other artistic professions is that there really is not uh, a public relations uh, level in in art, and uh, artists really only can advance if they have advocacy from other people. So every artist needs to have other people who believe in the work. Uh, it doesn't matter how much they say, and it doesn't matter how much they expose their work. The right person has to come along and say, I believe in this person, I believe in this work, and I believe it should be supported. If you go to uh, kitwhiteart.com, you're going to see an incredible presentation of paintings, an incredible biography, and a whole bunch of cool stuff. It's Kit White 
art.com. But today we're talking about, amongst other things, uh, Kit, who was the author of the book, 101 Things to Learn in Art School, with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth here on The Advertising Show. Back in just a minute with more. Back with you, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth, on The Advertising Show. As our special guest out of New York this weekend, Kit White, author of the new book, 101 Things to Learn in Art School. I'm sure there are more, but there again, there are weight limits on these books and such. So, Kit, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yeah, and as we said earlier in the uh, interview, if you're interested in art, you don't have to be an art student or an artist. If you just have a, a broad interest in fine art or the art world in general, it's a great book and it's a wonderful read. Certainly, if you're in the art uh, field and art is your career, I would highly recommend checking out Kit's book. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, a chapter entitled All Images Are Abstractions. And, of course, I call them chapters. Some are four, five, six lines, uh, even shorter, some are a little longer, but they're all jam-packed with great uh, great advice. So talk a little bit about how you see all images as abstractions, and I think you're right on when you say that, by the way, Kent. Well, it, if you think of an abstraction, of a, a classic abstraction, what you're dealing with are elements of harmony and form and line and color. And if you think about how one even learns to judge that, one learns everything we know from sight. We learn from looking at the world from very early on, from when we first open our eyes. The world is constantly giving us a tutorial in how sight works. So even when one moves to the very formal elements, those things all have a source, and they all go back to those very early formative stages when the eye and the brain start to coordinate, and we start to be able to see patterns and see light and see form. You know, there are innumerable times when they've had individuals who were born without sight uh, finally had their sight restored and they were unable to see uh, because their brain did not know how to decode the information that was coming in. And this is something that I think that, you know, we tend not to think about, the fact that our sight really is a learned response, just the way language is a learned response and virtually anything else. You know, and I guess uh, you mentioned cultural uh, influences earlier in the first segment, and certainly one's culture uh, influences one's sensibilities and, and what appeals to that particular uh, culture or group. And I found that part of the book very interesting. One of the advice chapters, I'm calling them advice chapters, uh, is a simple quote from a very famous artist, Philip Guston, where he says, you work to divest yourself of what you know. I want to end with something that baffles me for some time. Now, today we see a lot more art, I think, than years past that appears to have been created to baffle, mystify, confuse, startle, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'm curious, Kit, do you find that there are a lot more of this type of art being created these days? And if so, why is that? Well, I do. And and first, though, uh, I would like to say that... Uh, there's all kinds of art being made, and not all of it's good. Uh, art and the making of art really is a kind of experimentation. And as, as I say in one of the chapters, uh, most experiments fail. But you don't get to the successes unless you go through all of the uh, actions that don't work out. I think one thing that 
happened since the creation of modernism and abstraction back at the turn of the 19th to 20th century is we started to expect art to constantly be reinventing the vocabulary of sight. And you could only go so far with that. But we started to expect a level of novelty all the time as the way of waking us up to make us see the world a little bit differently. And I think for young artists, they're constantly looking for anything that will give them that edge, that capacity to make people look at it and say, well, what is it? And if I come to understand it, will it make me see the world in a new and fresh way? Uh, Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, and that's a good point. And I, I sense that a lot when I when I see something that startles, if you will. It's you're you're saying to yourself, "Is this artist really trying to get attention and say I'm I'm being innovative and different?" Or so many times we see great work, and and others suggest that it's uh, uh, similar to work that had been done previous. Well, I don't know how some work can be done without being influenced by previous work. It, it would be difficult to do. But uh, as you've already pointed out, Chapter 45 advises, as you have, uh, again, so eloquently put together here, Kit, work from your intuition and analyze with your intellect. I once heard a quote from someone that said, perfect your technique so that you can trust your instincts, which I think is maybe going about the same idea, just from a different uh, angle, if you will. How often... Does objectivity kit come into play when an artist is analyzing their own work? And, and is it really something that, that they can do objectively when doing this self-analysis that you're encouraging? It's very difficult, but it, that's one of the things that we really work on in the graduate program at Pratt. Uh, we spend most of our time in critique. In other words, we're going into students' studios and we're looking at the work and we're analyzing it. And part of that is to make them internalize this process of stepping back from the work, detaching, and seeing what's there instead of what they want to be there or what they think is there. And that kind of objectivity is very, very hard to achieve. But it's very necessary for advancing. But art doesn't tend to operate entirely in the objective realm. It tends to be very subjective by its nature. And so trying to apply objectivity to a subjective process is itself something of an oxymoron. It, you know, how do you do that? Uh, and I think that the real objective is really just to get to the point that you can see plainly what's in front of you and not be self-deluded about it. Hey, Ken, I had a question for you, too, as well, uh, as it relates to uh, music. You know, we've got the Beethovens and the Mozarts and and the uh, you know the classics and, and of course uh, uh, classical music uh, still has a, a very bright future. How does that relate to art? How do you see uh, uh, the next uh, you know uh, the next decade, the next uh, 100 years? Do we have those classics out there again? I think we will always have classics. Classics are the works that we have internalized and made part of our sense of the structure of the world. Uh, I think one of the hardest things is to look at what now is considered classic work, whether you're talking about music or you're talking about art, and see how radical it was at the time. It's, it's very hard to listen to a Beethoven sonata and imagine people being shocked 
by it, but they were at the time, as they were by Stravinsky, as they were by Philip Glass. Uh, I was listening to an interview with Philip Glass recently, and they played a piece of early music by his, and I thought, oh, that sounds so classic. And yet, within our lifetimes, that was something that absolutely upended people. So I think it is this process of internalizing something and beginning to see it as foundational to the way we see things now. I think that's what makes the classic. The, the one thing that I think is the biggest worry now, and, and here I'm going to quote uh, John Perales, a reviewer, uh, music reviewer for the New York Times, when he was trying to sum up what the first 10 years of this millennium had been. And he said, it may be remembered as the time when uh, the forms of delivery uh, overcame the content. And I think that as we live through this period, especially now where technology is advancing so rapidly, the important thing is to remember that it's the content that we have to focus on and that the novelty has to be in the content, not just in the technology that delivers it. You know, two quick questions before we wrap this up, and I'll give them both to you at the same time, Kit. Uh, although you're an art professor, you may be a bit biased, I've got to ask you. Do you believe in today's world someone can be a successful artist without an MFA? And then the final question is, your best single most important piece of advice you would give an artist who is just starting out? I don't think an MFA is critical for someone to be a good artist. I think that the that it enables people who already have talent make steps beyond where they are. And that's really where the value is. Uh, advice for uh, any young artist, I would say, is don't put too much pressure on your work. Uh, use your talent in whatever way uh, presents itself to you. Uh, and if you are someone who is compelled to make things, you will always do it, and uh, you have to believe in yourself, and you have to believe that it has value. And with those words, we say uh, thank you very much, Kit, for uh, taking the time to join us today here at the Advertising Show. Thank you very much. And we certainly hope you enjoyed today's Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsythe. Tell a friend about the Advertising Show, won't you? We certainly would appreciate that. The Advertising Show is being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, and we will talk to you again soon. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications, and it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.